The Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound, of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, then wiped his feet dry with her hair. The house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, complained. This perfume was worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would take what was in it. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial, and this is how she has used it. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. And our hymn now is in Voices Together, number 527, Bless the Arms That Comfort.
how lovely to have beautiful new words to a gorgeous hymn setting that we don't need to wait any longer for the bleak midwinter to sing. We can sing that all year round. And as we head into the bleak midwinter, of course, we can sing those old beloved words as well. Oh, it is good to be with you. Our story from John with Mary and her ointment is one that we heard not too long ago. We heard it earlier this year, in fact, at the end of Lent, and I preached on this text then. And so today, only a few months later, I'm going to be preaching a different take on this altogether, panning out a bit from the story to look at the broader context with a huge credit to Diana Butler Bass, whose name may ring a bell to some of you, and Diana Butler Bass and all of us owe an even bigger debt to a woman named Elizabeth Schrader, whom her friends apparently call Libby. Though not a personal friend of Elizabeth Schrader, I, like many other pastors and scholars and Bible nerds and regular old people of faith, have become very friendly with her story and her work in the last half a year or so. And so I may even take the liberty of calling her Libby this morning. We'll get to Libby, but let's begin with Mary. This is a sermon about Mary the Tower. Mary the Tower, who appears in our Gospels. Now, if you are asking yourself, which Mary? I don't actually recall a tower anywhere in the Gospels. You are asking exactly the right question. Which Mary indeed? This is like at Seattle Mennonite Church if I told you that I saw Sarah handing Laura a gift. Which one? <laughs> well, I went through the directory. I counted at least three Sarahs and at least four Lauras. So uh, there, in fact, could be more. Which Mary is exactly the right question to be asking about this sermon? about Mary the Tower. Well, the start of our gospel this morning, as we heard from Cindy, was six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, just the chapter before. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him, Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount of nard, dot, dot, dot. The story carries on. Which Mary? Well, because she's there with Martha and with Lazarus, it seems like it is the Mary and Martha of Luke 10, an entirely different gospel. The Mary and Martha who welcomed Jesus into the home when Martha was busy with her many tasks. We all know this story. It's very familiar. Martha was busy with her many tasks, and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, and later Jesus says that 
Mary chose the better part when Martha complains. This is a story that's been preached a million times and we've all identified with Mary or Martha or both at different times. It seems like it's the same Mary and Martha from Luke, but there's a couple of issues. One of those issues <clears throat> is that in Luke, so not what we heard today, Luke, that familiar story of Mary and Martha, it tells us, Luke, the gospel writer, tells us that Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. It's very clear that it is her home and that she had a sister, Mary. Now, given the context at the time, it would have been impossible for Martha to have had a home that was hers unless she had no male relative unless she had no father, if she had no husband, if she had no brother. Now, if the Mary and Martha and Luke and in John are the same Mary and Martha, they have a brother Lazarus and it would not have been Martha's home. Okay, so that's one, one issue that we have here in, in harmonizing these families. The second issue is that in Luke, that Mary and Martha story, Bethany is never mentioned. And in fact, Bethany is in the opposite direction of where Jesus is headed in Luke. So it does not make sense that Jesus would be in Bethany there. It says, instead of a certain village. So there's a couple of issues, but you know, Gospels are different and sometimes issues crop up, but let's hold on to those because we're on our way to an even bigger issue. And this is where we're gonna come back to Sarah giving Laura a gift here in Seattle Mennonite Church. Well, you may assume that Sarah Oyer gave Laura Gerber a gift but actually, it was Sarah Crable Burkhalter who gave Laura Schlaba a gift. Or was it Sarah Augustine giving Laura Graham and Laura Eshelman a gift? <sighs> you get my point. Which Mary? There's a lot of Marys, and it doesn't mean that all the Marys are the same Marys. All right, that's our teaser right now for Mary. And now I'm going to turn to our friend Libby. Libby Schrader. Libby Schrader was a, is a musician, a singer-songwriter in New York City, a lifelong Episcopalian, a devout person, a churchgoer. She walked into a church garden in New York City one day to pray, to meditate, and she heard a voice, and she's not one prone to hearing voices. I just have to trust her on this. I don't know her personally. Not one to, prone to hearing voices, but she heard a voice that said, follow Mary Magdalene. It, it seemed like a call, like a summons. Follow Mary Magdalene. Well, Libby Schrader is a singer-songwriter, so she wrote a song. It's called The Magdalene. You can find it online if you would like and listen to it. She thought she was following Mary Magdalene. But after writing the song, after sharing it with her community, she was nagged by this feeling that she needed to learn more. 
And so, as a lifelong Episcopalian, she called General Theological Seminary in New York City and said, I, um, I, I need to learn more about Mary Magdalene. Can you help me? Like, how do I learn more about Mary Magdalene? And the poor person on the other line <laughs> said, well, we have degree programs. <laughs> And so Libby, not knowing how else to keep following Mary Magdalene, decided to enroll at General Theological Seminary in a master's degree program in New Testament studies. So she took all those seminary courses. She learned the original language, Greek. Uh, when she was nearing the end of her two-year degree program, she was writing her final paper on John 11, what we just heard this morning, and Mary Magdalene, wondering if it might be Mary Magdalene. And the professor said, well, you know, these texts, these ancient Greek manuscripts are newly digitized. So I'd really love you to find something new to say. Maybe I gave her the information to reach out uh, to the German society that keeps track of these ancient Greek texts. And uh, so Libby sent off an email. She's just a little master student in New York trying to follow Mary Magdalene. And she received in her email inbox a copy of Papyrus 66. Papyrus 66 is the oldest and most complete version of the Gospel of John, written around 200 CE. So this is the papyrus that is the source text for every Bible that you have out there. It is the oldest extant version. It is kept by scholars. And then when translation committees are working on a new translation of the Bible, they return to these source documents. So there's Libby Schrader in New York City, who's just been emailed a copy, a digitized copy of Papyrus 66. This has been around for centuries, but prior to very recently, people had to travel all the way to wherever it is. Actually, I should have, Germany, Switzerland, do you recall, Cindy? I don't recall exactly. Germany, Switzerland, maybe the Netherlands, in, in Western Europe, would have to travel all the way there, get special permissions, go into the archive library to see it. Well, here's Libby Schrader looking at this Papyrus 66 on her computer screen, and she's reading John, the story that we just read together. And lo and behold, she notices something. An editor has clearly been through the text. Because there are things crossed out and other things written above, right? And so she reads it, and she's got her, you know, New Testament Greek fresh, fresh on the brain. And she notices that there are multiple uh, appearances of Mary, Maria, throughout these two chapters, John 11 and 12, where the yota, the I, is crossed out and a theta, TH, is scrawled in above. So Mary, with just one change of a letter, becomes Martha. She thinks, that's strange. What is happening here? There are additional notes. There are in these two chapters in John. Sister appears singularly. And in each case, the editor above has added an S to create two sisters, a Mary and a Martha 
were before there was only a Mary. So now I'm going to reread the start of John the way it appears in the original Greek. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sister, singular, there's only one, Lazarus and his sister hosted a dinner for him. Mary, there's no Martha, Mary served and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount of nard, dot, 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 and the story continues. Now this is just a little bit, um, we get more of it in chapter 11, when Lazarus dies and is raised from the dead, and you think there's a Mary and Martha there in your text? Libby's looking at her computer screen. Those were all Marys, and some of them have been changed to Martha to make it look like a Mary and Martha that appears in Luke. Okay, now this is getting um, Bible nerdy. I understand, and not all of you are super Bible nerdy, although I see, yes, I see some excitement out there for some of you that are. But here's the TLDR, the too long didn't read. Somebody way back, the beginning of time, 200 CE, somebody changed John chapters 11 and 12 to split Mary into two women named Mary and Martha, split Mary into two women because that editor, I don't know why, thought that it would be better if John's story of Mary and Lazarus matched Luke's story of Mary and Martha and sort of smooshed those two families together. So Sarah gave Laura a gift. Which Sarah, which Laura, which Mary? Now Libby's world has turned upside down and I am go going to tell you that our world has turned upside down. Here's the other TLDR. Then this is the biggest biblical news in any of our lifetimes, by far, by far. I know sometimes we get up here and we say, oh, I wonder if this text might mean this, or if this story might be this, and there's some sort of interesting sort of alternatives and ideas. This, this is not that. This, this is completely ground shaking to the point where Harvard Divinity School asked if they could publish a version of Libby's article in their journal then the Nestle Arland Translation Committee in Germany, they are the guardians of the Greek New Testament. These are the scholars that hold the oldest Greek New Testament. They saw the Harvard article and they contacted Libby to come spend time with them. Now, the, these men, mostly, these people, these humans are the guardians of the Greek New Testament. They take care of that Papyrus 66 and all those source documents. Every biblical translation comes through them. They are considering changing John 11 and 12 because of this research. It may be that in our lifetime, in the next year or two, there will no longer be a Martha in John 11 to 12 because she is not there. 
in the original text. Somebody, somebody way back when, added her in, obscuring that it was a singular Mary through that entire story. There has not been a change in the New Testament in any of our lifetimes like this. Nothing even close to it. You can see it maybe most interestingly in your Bibles at the end of Mark. We often talk about that come Easter season when it's a Mark year, the way that Mark ends with the disciples just running away in fear. And then there's, you can see big brackets around other texts in your Mark, and, and it's in all of your Bibles. So if you haven't looked at the end of Mark, go look at it because it's super interesting. There's two alternative endings for Mark that are in brackets and there's footnotes and you can see that there's textual variants. You know, this is the Bible nerdy stuff, but that happened long before our lifetimes that that was discovered and changed. This, Libby's research, is maybe gonna be the only thing that changes in our Bibles in our lifetimes in such a huge significant way. In part because this, um, what she's found that this is Mary in these stories and not a Mary and Martha, that it's Mary, it means it is very likely Mary Magdalene. It is Mary Magdalene who appears throughout the Gospel of John. There are only two Christological confessions in all of our Gospels. There's only two times that somebody says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are God. You are the incarnate one whom God has sent. It's a very big deal at that time for somebody to have made that Christological confession while Jesus was alive. There are only two of those throughout our Gospels. One of them is Peter. Peter makes that Christological confession in all of the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus' response to Peter's confessing him Messiah Christ is to say, Peter, you are the rock, and on you I will build my church. That's why Peter is considered the first pope in the Catholic Church, right? It's very, very important. The second, the only other Christological confession in all of the Gospels is in the Gospel of John, and up until this point, it's been a relatively minor character named Martha who utters those words outside of Lazarus' tomb. It's been in Martha, and in John, Peter stops just shy of making a Christological confession. But what Libby found is that it's not Martha at all, that there is no Martha in those chapters. It is Mary, and it is Mary Magdalene. It is Mary Magdalene. So if it is Mary who makes this Christological confession, and not an unremembered Mary, but the Mary who appears throughout John's Gospel, and as many long suspected, is Mary Magdalene, who in just a few chapters later will become the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus, who will meet him in the garden and again say, my Lord and my Savior. If it is in fact Mary Magdalene throughout the Gospel of John, who is the only other confessor of Christ in all of our Gospels, well, <laughs> well, we've got ourselves a story then. 
We've got ourselves a story. It's interesting, I was telling my father-in-law about this research that has just shaken up the world and may shake it up more when our next versions of the Bible <laughs> actually change the Gospel of John for a first time ever in any of our lifetimes. I was telling my father-in-law, and he subscribes to Biblical Archaeology magazine, which he had along, because uh, you may know he does a lot of archaeological stuff um, along the coast of Turkey and Greece and some of those ancient biblical sites and in the Middle East and Israel and Palestine. And sure enough, there was an article in his current issue of the Biblical Archaeology magazine about Libby Schrader's research and resulting research about Magdala. Okay, so we've asked the question, which Mary, which Sarah, which Laura, which Mary? What we haven't gotten to is what I initially said is this is a sermon about Mary the Tower. Where's the tower? What's that tower about? Magdala, it turns out, we've long assumed Mary of Magdalene is from a place called Magdala. And if you go on a Holy Lands tour, they will even take you to a place that they say is called Magdala, which is the birthplace of Mary Magdalene. Unfortunately, it was not known as Magdala. It's made up. <laughs> Frankly, like a number of those sort of detail spots on Holy Land tours are. We don't know exactly where Jesus was born. The Church of the Nativity commemorates it, but it is not the spot, right? So they'll take you to a Magdala and they'll tell you it's Magdala and it was not known as Magdala in the first century CE. So that means this Mary and John, who is from Bethany and not from a place called Magdala, this Mary Magdalene from Bethany, well, she's not from Magdala, if she's from Bethany, then why is she known as the Magdalene? Turns out that Magdala may not be a place, but a title. It means tower. Magdala means tower. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter confesses Christ, and Christ says, Peter, you're the rock on which I will build my church. In John, Mary confesses Christ, and Jesus says, Mary, you are the tower. Peter the rock, and Mary the tower. Now I promise I'm going to wrap up the nerdy stuff at this point. I don't know if you've followed or found it interesting. I find it fascinating. <laughs> and I think we all will when our Bibles change because the Nestle Armand Society of Biblical Translation is considering making this change in the Bible. This is mind-blowing. But I wonder just very personally, what if I had grown up with both Peter the Rock and Mary the Tower? As a little girl, an earnest little girl with a fierce faith, whom many of you know, um, a faith that compelled me to proclaim my readiness for adult baptism at the age of nine, <sighs> shook my church to its core. They didn't know what to do with me. I was younger than anybody had ever been. What if that little girl 
where women could not hold leadership positions. Couldn't preach, couldn't be elders. What if that little girl had grown up with Peter the Rock and Mary the Tower? We are soon going to have the opportunity to consider who some of the towers of faith in our life have been. So that's the teaser. You can all already start to think who have been some of the people in your life of all genders who have been towers of faith for you. I've had the uh, opportunity to know this question was coming. And so I already know one of my towers of faith is absolutely without doubt, Doris Schrock. Doris Schrock sat in the first row at Yellow Creek Mennonite Church front and center every day. I know because every Sunday, because we sat in the second row um, in the center section on the right. So she was always there sitting next to her husband, Alan. Mm, mm. Doris is one of my towers of faith. She was a woman of extraordinary faith and wisdom and steadiness. And um, she was not allowed to be the leader she very clearly was in our community. I wonder what would have happened if Doris Schrock had grown up with Peter the Rock and Mary the Tower. We are about to head into year W. Wilda Gaffney's single year lectionary really lifting up some of the stories of women and others on the margins who have mostly been absent from other lectionaries. We're going to start that next Sunday with the first Sunday of Advent. And this is part of why we're doing it. Because an editor somewhere a long time ago obscured Mary Magdalene and her prominent role as Tower of Faith in the Gospel of John. So we are going to tell those stories in the year to come, lift up those who have been forgotten. And like I said, today we get to ponder who some of those people are in our own lives, and we get the chance to make it public and loud and proud, honoring the Towers of Faith for us. Thank you for coming along on this sermonic journey with me and Mary the Tower and Libby Schrader. Uh, I invite further conversation in the weeks to come. Amen. <laughs>